This episode of the Relax Running Podcast is brought to you by my favorite undies, Rundies Undies Athletic Underwear. In fact, I'm wearing them right now. I'm, that's all I'm wearing as I... That's I'm not. That's, I've got them on, but I've got pants on and a t-shirt. I was trying to be funny. I'm not, I felt like I didn't deliver that well, but here, here we are. I hope you got a chuckle. <laughs> Rundies Undies Athletic Underwear were founded in 2015 by my good mate and Australian marathon runner, Jessica Stenson. You probably know her as Jess Tringove. Mind you, she's been married for a while now, so Stenson's starting to uh, go with the name really well. Her husband, Dylan, and her brother, Jack. Rundies are smooth, breathable, supportive, and feature soft bamboo fabric in the gusset. Their range for men and women includes jocks, trunks, briefs, crop tops, and I told you last week, they got a little G-banger going on. I haven't tried it on yet, but I'm not ruling it out. So I've, I've heard good things about it. My wife's got one, all right? So I've, I feel like I'm sharing way too much information at the start of this podcast, but it doesn't matter. We're here now, and I'm not redoing this. So if you want to get a 25% discount on any of your purchases over at rundies.com.au, simply enter the coupon code RELAXED. 25. That's all in capital letters. So that'll take 25% straight off your purchases. Guys, you're in for a treat today. We have the uh, the super talented, the the awesome Ali McLean. Ali is uh, an athletics or a, a distance running nutritionist. She's got a real passion in helping, making sure athletes, Ironman triathletes, distance runners are well and truly fueled correctly for their event. I was lucky enough to bump into Ali a couple of months ago. Actually, we get into the story in, in just a moment, so you'll find out how we meet. She's actually the partner of the great and powerful Ryan Mannix, who's a yoga teacher who we've had on here a couple of months ago. Ali's a big fan of the low-carb, high-fat diet, and she's a, she's super switched on in the subject of food and nutrition. It was so great just to, you know, to dip my toes in the water with her and try and get a bit more of an understanding about the practical ways that we can help fuel our performance through our diet. Obviously, this podcast is all about training. It's about strength, and, and diet seems to come up week in, week out. And my wife's been saying for ages, babe, you've got to get a good dietitian on. So I've been on the hunt for the right one, and, and Ali was exactly what I'm looking for. The good news for you guys is if you enjoy what Ali's about or if you're keen to make some improvements in your own diet, Ali offers a free consult to all new clients. So if you want to just go see if she's got something she might be able to help you with, point in the right direction, you can head over to her website, Nutrition Alley, Nutritionally, that's nutrition, E-L-L-Y.com, and uh, just get in contact with her. Let her know what it is you're looking for, how it is you would like her to be able to help, and see if there's a nice little fit there that's uh, absolutely uh, no requirements to follow through on a, a you know a next session. But uh, if, you, if you get a little taste and you like it, you're in for a treat. I did one the other day, and man, I've got pages of notes, and I've... Uh, I've been making a few little changes. You should see my my new oat bowl in the morning. It's not even oats, but it's tasty and it's fuel uh, filled with fuel, and it's uh, it's quite tasty. So anyway, this is a banger of a podcast. I felt way out of my depth, but in the best kind of way. So I was just asking a lot of questions about how we can improve our diet, and uh, we've got some bonus features on the relaxed running membership as well. If you would like to jump over there and see Ali answer some more questions, she's on the experts corner of the video library. Um, hey, we've got some new members joining up recently, which is fantastic. We're getting a good little crew together. So if you want to become a relaxed running member, you'll get access to our bonus podcast, Experts Corner, Video Library. You'll see our training programs, and you'll also get access to our bonus members-only Facebook page, which we just started up the other day and uh, you know, starting to get a good little community going over there. So uh, hey, jump on over to relaxrunning.com slash join if you want to check that out. But hey, for the meantime, sit back, relax, grab a notepad and pen, because there's a whole heap in this one. Um Welcome the uh, the wonderful Ali McLean. Well, I'm pumped to get you on. As I said before, um, it was funny because Jesse, my wife for ages, has been going, babe, like, yeah, it's awesome talking all running and stuff and getting physios and stuff. She's like, but you really need a nutritionist, a nutritionist mm. on because I'm sure there's plenty of questions that athletes have around that. So when I interviewed possibly the best looking guest that we've ever had on the podcast <laughs> in Ryan Mannix, your boyfriend, and I found out that you're a nutritionist in the running scene, I got so excited to to get you on. But it's weird because I feel like I sort of know you, but I've only met you once at the bubbler at an airport. 
Well, yeah, we did have that that interaction at the airport on the way to Bali when Ryan and I were like getting our steps up because I'm like, come on, we've got to get steps on steps up before we get on the airplane. Um, but yes, curls do get the girls, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know what Ryan looks like, he does have very curly hair. Um, so yeah, it's good to be. It's good to be having this chat and on the show. Um, and Ryan and I actually met through nutrition. So he may have told you on the show that he um, used to work with Triathlon Victor- Victoria managing their, I think it was level two triathlon coaches um, syllabus. And so I got wheeled in one day to do a seminar for those coaches on sports nutrition and that's how we ended up meeting. Uh, so you were responsible for that late walk around the airport week because I was so impressed because I'd done a Lululemon class with Ryan in the yoga scene and uh, I saw him straight away and I reckon because I loved his class. I left that guy, but that guy was a, that guy was a boss. And then when I saw him yeah. at the airport, I was like, oh, it's the, it's the yoga instructor. And I was admiring yeah. the fact that he was just making the most of the last few minutes walking around the airport but that was you responsible yeah. for keeping the steps up not him hey well I I'm usually responsible for trying to go and get steps for absolutely no reason I worked in corporate health for like eight years and we ran a um we ran a step program so like I know how to calculate everything in steps like how far away something is how long it takes to get to somewhere I like I calculate it in steps um and yeah but I think luckily both of us are pretty onto our steps like you know you're about to get on a plane for eight hours you you don't want to sit there um you don't want to sit down for longer than you have to, basically. Yeah, no, that's good. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty complementary relationship, hey. So you're giving out the nutrition advice and getting free yoga lessons on the on the side. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm glad about it. I always said like when I meet someone who doesn't mind about me being so fastidious about what's on my plate, that's when I've won. And like Ryan is almost more fastidious about what is what's on his plate than I am so I'm like okay cool he's not going to look down on me then which is a great thing uh, that's awesome now I'm so pumped to have you on and I've got mm. I've got a heap of questions that I'm, I'm really interested in asking you about running like in running outside of running and, and about you how you sort of found your way into the scene but it's a it's honestly it's a scene where I feel like I've read a lot of information and I've seen how many different opinions and how many different thoughts and ideas there are on um, how to work nutrition into your not only your day but into your, your sports training program that I'm I'm really keen to learn from someone who actually knows what they're talking about, not just some random blogger's opinion on <laughs> on Instagram. But like, tell us a little bit about how you found your way into the scene. It's a, 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 a really interesting story, I guess, to gradually find your way into um, you know the scene of nutrition, which is a it just seems it just filters through every element of your life. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's been an area of interest for like almost as long as I can remember. So I remember when I was at high school watching our like, you know, number one's footy team run out onto the Oval or when I was watching Iron Man, you know, on the TV on the weekends, I actually found myself thinking, you know, I wonder what these guys are eating and I wonder if they ate, you know, breakfast A versus breakfast B, whether they would perform differently on on any given day. Um, So I... Yeah, I was thinking about it a lot. And then I was speaking with our careers counsellor at school and I learned that there was this university degree that I could do exercise and sports science majoring in um, nutrition and exercise science. So I was like, great, that's what I'm going to go and do and study. And so I always had this intention and this dream of being a sports nutritionist. Um, but I guess it's taken a little while for it took a little while for me to come around to actually practicing in the space of sports nutrition. So after university, I went and worked in corporate health for probably the, uh, about seven or eight years. I think I was working in corporate health. Um, and then I started doing a little bit of extra study in health coaching. And then I started working one-on-one in nutrition consultation for a clinic that's called The Natural Nutritionist. And we do, we do specialise in sports nutrition, but uh, we've now sort of found ourselves working in a much broader area than just sports nutrition. And that's because we work in a I guess, a pretty nuanced area of sports nutrition, which is in this lower carbohydrate, healthy fat space, which we can definitely get more into later today. Uh, But it is a fairly niche area and that sort of lower carbohydrate, healthy fat sports nutrition space lends itself really well to those with digestive um, issues. We work with a lot of gut health clients, those with body fat loss goals. We work with a lot of purely fat loss clients. And then, of course, those that really want to optimise their training. A lot of our athletes are endurance-based athletes, but we're finding probably in the last year or so we're getting more power-based athletes, so more team athletes, um, more more 
um, lifters, crossfitters, that sort of thing are also starting to come in and wanting to learn about uh, LCHF nutrition. So, yeah, I, I've been on this journey for what now, probably 15 or 16 or 17 years or something like that. But um, it's really wonderful to be where I am and doing what I am. I love it. That's really cool. It's interesting in the world of um, endurance as well. I think for so long the, the whole subject has been around, it's like carbo loading and making sure you're getting in your carbs and making sure you're all stocked up in that uh, capacity so you're, you're ready to roll. So uh, I've, heard, I've heard quite a few endurance athletes speak about the benefits of the, the low-carb, high-fat sort of approach. And um, that's why I was really interested in picking your brain about it because it, it seems like something which I'm sure for you has been around a lot longer than I realise it has. But it, it seems like on the public conversations, it's it, it's coming up a lot more than what it ever used to. Like, how did you how did you find your way into the what do you call it? The LC. I, I can't even do the L- acronym. So <laughs> the acronym. <laughs> um, LCHF. So diff, uh, I guess different people will have different versions of the acronym, but I look at it as being lower carbohydrate. So lower carbohydrate than the food pyramid, and healthy fat nutrition. So rather than looking at this like every fat is is game, um, looking at healthy fats. So we're prioritising our omega-3 fatty acids, our um, even our saturated fats, but from, from whole food sources. So yeah, lower carbohydrate, healthy fat nutrition is, is really that extension of the abbreviation and what it means. And yeah, it has been around for a while. Um, it was... Some of the like the biggest study done on LCHF nutrition and what we call keto fat adapted athletes was the FASTER study, which I think was done in around about 2013, 2012. But there's been proponents of this for much longer than that. So I guess the the messiah of LCHF training, so fat fat adaptation for endurance athletes, is a guy by the name of Phil Maffetone. He's an exercise physiologist from the USA, and he started practicing in like fat adaptation for his athletes back in the seventies. So he he would have been seen as a real like whack job back then in the seventies, talking about this idea of fat adaptation for athletes. Um, And now, you know, we're getting around to the what are we in the the 2020s and previously in the noughties, um, it's starting to become more mainstream. Yeah. And is that like, where's the mainstream factor of it come from? Obviously the fact that some people have found that it's really working for them, but is there, I don't know what it's like in the nutrition scene, but is there a little bit of controversy or a little bit of conversation at least between the, I guess the higher carb athletes who, who love to load up on the breads and the passes and stuff before they race and the people who are, I guess, loading up on the, on the higher fats products. What's the, what's the conversation look like there? And, I'm really keen to pick your brain on on the distances mm. and stuff where this starts to be a factor as well because yeah. um, I know some of the like the ultra endurance athletes and even some of the marathon runners have have had a lot of success with this, but um, it's just mm. so foreign to me that I wouldn't even know how to implement it or what the benefits are or because you're predominantly mm. plant based as well in in what you prescribe, aren't you? I I personally am predominantly plant based, and I guess by that I mean you know ninety nine percent of my diet is plant based. In terms of like the prescription that I would give to my client base, it definitely wouldn't be that high unless that was unless it was an individual who said I specifically want to be on you know a ninety nine or hundred percent plant based diet. But the 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 general prescription I give would be a like large majority plants and that's that's for health reasons you know packing a diet full of fiber and antioxidants which we know is so conducive to health and um, supporting you know reduction and inflammation and overcoming training induced um, stress and inflammation so yeah I do prescribe a largely plant-based diet but I wouldn't say it's a vegan or vegetarian diet that I'm prescribing in the in the space LCHF, yeah, you asked if there is any sort of controversy between those that are prescribing a higher carbohydrate diet and those prescribing a lower carbohydrate diet. And I would say that the short answer to that question is yes, there is still that controversy. And this is where I've had to develop a thick skin in my practices as a nutritionist because it is a largely debated area. You know, I think there are a few key areas of nutrition that we can all agree on, which is that, you know, trans fatty acids shouldn't be part of our diet and plants should form a large part of our diets. We shouldn't overeat and we shouldn't force feed and we shouldn't undereat. But there's still a lot of grey when it comes to nutrition or there is it like this spectrum when it comes to nutrition and people at either of the end of the spectrum like to like to um like to debate it so i guess yeah when you get somebody that's a staunch like um carbohydrate fan who's sort of practicing that 
that carbohydrate loading and then you speak with somebody who's down the probably the extreme end would be keto so a ketogenic diet um and i sit probably just in a little bit from that which is a lower carbohydrate healthy fat protocol so it's definitely definitely a little bit of conflict i would say there's starting to become less conflict because there there is a little more research coming out around the benefits of lchf and the benefits of becoming a fat adapted athlete um some of the research has still been really questionable over the years and and that's because it takes time to become fat adapted. So as you said before, you wouldn't even know where to begin if your diet wasn't based around carbohydrates or your training nutrition wasn't based around carbohydrates. And so this is actually where a lot of the shortfalls in the research comes in because they take these athletes who are what we would call sugar burners. Uh, in, in essence, they've got a metabolism that is geared towards predominantly carbohydrate utilisation muscle glycogen utilization and they take these athletes and they go and get them to run on empty or they go and get them to run without taking in any exogenous fuel source and they fail they fail dismally at it and so lchf or fat adaptation has got a bad rap because the evidence has shown well you can't take an athlete and get them to run on empty but if you take an athlete and you put them through the fat adaptation process which you know, initially is about two weeks, but for some athletes, it can take anywhere up to 12 weeks to become truly fat adapted, put them through that process. And that's when you can show that the athlete is able to perform really, really well. Now, I would say that if your diet is working for you, then like probably stick with it, don't change it. But the real benefits around LCHF nutrition for athletes is in all of the other stuff it's the training recovery, it's the energy levels outside of training, it's the reduction in inflammation and the, and, and the flow and effect that that has to training recovery, it's the control in appetite. Um, so all of those things which we forget, like athletes are still individuals and they still need to have great quality of life and longevity in the sport as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the, the, um, that adaptation process because one of my good mates, I, was, I used to do some running up at Fernie Creek and from time to time still get up there for a run, but there was a phase where he decided that he was going to go, and I think it was more a keto diet, and uh, yeah. it was a pretty quick transition. And I remember one week we would always run at about a similar level, and this one particular week we got up there and he was on his brand-new diet and excited just to experiment with his new energy levels and <laughs> see how it would go. Mm. And he got to the bottom of one of the hills. He's, we were about 10Ks into a 20K run. And he's like, mate, I've, I've got to, I've got to yeah, stop. Done. He's like, I've just yeah. got no energy. So what's the story there when someone, obviously that's an extreme example, and, and you've mentioned the fact it's quite individual, the way that people respond. So it's, it's hard to give out, I guess, a generic answer to this question. But like just that lack of energy that a bloke like that who's trying to transition into a new diet where he's predominantly getting his energy from fats is that yeah. is there like a, a little bit of a, a guidebook or a rule book as to how someone who's considering making a change in their diet could go about would navigate it. energies from that fat? Yeah, yeah. And your mate, we would we would say that he was in the metabolic grey zone. He's in no man's land where he's essentially um, taken away his primary fuel source, which at, up until that point was muscle glycogen. So he's taken that away through consuming a low carbohydrate diet, or in his case, perhaps a, a ketogenic diet for a period of time. And then he's taken his body out and exercised, but he's not yet taught his body how to utilize fat effectively as a fuel source. So he's effectively like rendered himself with no fuel to access. Yeah. Um, the analogy we, we also use is that in this process of fat adaptation, it's like taking a car and maybe taking it from being a petrol-burning car um, to being a diesel-burning car. You know, we know that burning diesel is far more efficient and so that's like burning fat in the, um, in the endurance space. We see utilising fat as a fuel source as being more efficient. But if you... If you are like if you've got that diesel engine, um, but you have but you've been you're still trying to put um, regular fuel in it, but you've got a diesel engine, then you're not going to go anywhere. That's sort of like what we call the metabolic grey zone. So, what I, I like to describe it this way: so essentially, if if you think of an athlete and their energy storage capacity, um, you will they will have the ability, and let's say like a nice lean sort of 60, 70 kilo male. Um, they will have 
probably the ability to to store around about 1500 calories worth of energy in the form of stored muscle glycogen. So that's carbohydrates that's stored in the muscle and available for use. If you take that same athlete who is, um, you know, that 60 to 70 kilogram lean male, um, low body fat, they probably have tens of thousands, like up to 60,000 calories worth of energy in the form of stored body fat. So the whole premise of um, fat adaptation is being able to take this athlete and teach them not just how to use that 1,500 calories worth of energy of glycogen, but teaching their body how to more efficiently use that 60,000 calories worth of energy that's stored there in the form of body fat. Now, for endurance athletes, this really makes sense because if you've got an athlete who's only able to tap into the petrol engine, those 1,500 calories worth of energy and muscle glycogen, well, then they're going to run out of fuel in the space of a couple of hours. And of course, they can take on board some exogenous carbohydrates. And that's where we see things like sports gels and drinks and bars and stuff that we can talk about more in a little bit. You know, we see those things being really helpful, but there's obviously a limit there to how much calories an athlete can take in um, before they start to experience or risk any sort of stomach upset and therefore not being able to meet that that. Um, that carbohydrate requirement. So the athlete who can tap into this diesel engine and that 60,000 calories of energy in the form of body fat, there's far less risk of them either experiencing gastrointestinal upset because they've got to take in all those exogenous carbs or less risk of them hitting a wall because they've got this almost limitless fuel source. Like they could run for days if they were able to teach their body how to utilize that fat for fuel. Yeah. And the the process of switching those engines is not an overnight process. Yeah. Like I said, that process is usually about a two week process. And so I was just um, sort of debating this yesterday, like whether the process is best done quickly or whether it's best done slowly. So essentially the process is done. um, There's a few different factors involved, but you purely and simply reduce the amount of carbohydrate that the athlete is consuming. And you can do that slowly, you know, by firstly saying no, no refined carbohydrates. So you're taking out confectionery and added sugars and probably even cereals and breads, or you can do it quickly. So you can put this athlete on a protocol of around about 60 to 80 grams of carbohydrates per day. And, and, um, they would definitely find it more challenging. So on that much lower carbohydrate intake for, let's say, a two-week period, they would definitely find it more challenging. And the guidance and recommendation that I give to people is that if you are going to take that faster approach to becoming fat adapted, then be nice to yourself. Like reduce your training intensity um, for those two weeks. So you're not doing all of this anaerobic activity, which is far more reliant on muscle glycogen, but rather you're doing like pure aerobic, much lower intensity stuff, which gives you your body an actual chance to tap into, tap into fat. Um, drink lots of water, get lots of sleep, drink, eat really good quality food. And there, there are all some things to consider while going through that, that two week initial period of fat adaptation. If it's something that you want to do quickly. Yeah, I didn't timing. Even, oh, sorry. No, you keep going. You keep going. I, I was, I was just going to say timing is a big factor because I'm just imagining people listening to this and they're like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to go and become fat adapted next week. Um, timing is, so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> timing is a big factor for consideration because if you've got a big event coming up ideally you wouldn't be trying to become fat adapted in the weeks leading into that event. I would recommend that uh, you're giving yourself in a perfect world, a 12 week window to make that metabolic transition of being, you know, probably what was a predominant carbohydrate burner to becoming what I would become, what I would say was more fuel efficient. So being able to tap into the the both um, types of fuel, you know, perhaps now is a good time because we are in the midst of restrictions and, events being called off and that sort of stuff so yeah maybe now is a good time to think (laughs) about becoming fat adapted depending on where you are in the world yeah no that's really good what i was about to to ask you before and um it's it's so interesting because until now i'd only ever thought about uh, sort of a low carb high fat approach to to eating in terms of how much energy it gave you while you're running but you mentioned before Mm. that a lot of it's got to do with the recovery factor as well and I know this is quite an extreme example but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it and whether it's sort of down the avenue of what you were referring to I I listened to um 
a bloke. Um, you probably heard of Jordan Peterson. I don't know how much you know about Jordan Peterson. No. He's a, like an American, uh, sorry, a Canadian professor. But he had a lot of trouble with um, he had a lot of trouble with autoimmune diseases through his whole life, and he's pretty much gone on a full carnivore diet. And a lot of his autoimmune diseases, which seem to stem from inflammation, from what I've heard from him, have just have just disappeared. So he's become mm. like a, a big proponent, and, and I know it's quite controversial, and I'm, I'm definitely not tying this to what you're speaking about, but um, he's pretty much just living on, on on meat, steak, and things like that because the benefits to his own <laughs> immune system yeah. or the inflammation that he's experienced seem to have have treated disappeared. Um, yeah, yeah. So oh, I was just—I know that's a different thing to what we're talking about, but I was just interested to hear because obviously, well, I guess with a diet like that, all of your energy, I guess, going to come from the the fats that we. Is in within that, that meat, I assume. I don't know what I'm talking about, so feel free to pull me yeah. up and tell me I'm talking smack. But the yeah. the the inflammation factor that you were mentioning about before, in terms of the recovery from a diet like mm. what's the story there? How does that inflammation get treated? How is it that people are recovering better from a, a high fat diet rather than a, a high carb diet? Yeah, so plain and simply, when you're burning carbohydrates for fuel, you're producing what are called reactive oxygen species. So the actual process of utilising carbs um, to produce energy is is producing these pro-oxidants. And so that means there's a lot of oxidation for your body to mop up, which of course it can do with, um, with the consumption of antioxidants, things like vitamin C, selenium and zinc, they're all antioxidants that our body can use, coenzyme Q10 to help wrap, wrap up that, that, um, that oxidation, those free radicals. But when you're burning fat for fuel, like I alluded to before, it's more efficient. We don't produce as much of um, that inflammation in response to the fat being utilised. So when you've got an athlete who's dealing with the natural training-induced inflammation, um, if they're not having to deal with additional inflammation from this excess burning of carbohydrate, then naturally there's less work for all of those mopping up systems to do. So the recovery is better. We can get even to even more detail around things like gut health, which I know, which I know the, your listeners have shown some interest in, but you know, I talk a lot with my athletes about the importance of gut health for helping to manage inflammation and therefore helping them to recover from their training. Um, and gut health, gut health is a very, very big topic, but in its simplest form, I would say ideal gut health is a digestive system that can A, perform a barrier of defence between us and the outside world, B, help us to efficiently break down the food that we consume so that C, we can effectively absorb the nutrients that's there in the food that we consume. But there's a lot else going on in the gut. So we've got this gut microbiome, which is this home to, if you need a visual, home to three kilograms of gut bacteria. And those bacteria, if we've got the right type, they work in our favour. Favor. So we've even got bacteria that if we nurture them, they will produce elements of the immune system that help us to overcome inflammation. Okay, so we've, we've got a diet that's supporting, the, that's supporting fat burning, which is helping to reduce inflammation in the body. We've got a diet that's supporting the gut microbiome, which is then going on to help overcome with inflammation in the body. So, yeah, there's just lots of different mechanisms in how, a, yes, an LCHF diet, but also a really beautiful whole food diet can support the athlete in recovering from their training sessions. Beautiful. The carniv- the carnivorous diet. I I, <laughs> I, saw, again, I saw your face creamed a little bit when I mentioned <laughs> it, so I was interested to hear what you were thinking about it. Well, again, it's this it's it's the idea of the extremes, right? I I, I I'm interested to see the long term research around the benefits of a carnivorous diet because. Um, I can appreciate probably the shorter term effects and these shorter term benefits because within plants we we do have we do have exposure to chemicals some chemicals that um, can cause a lot of digestive upset for people which can be that initial source of inflammation um, but that's usually a sign of something deeper that's going on in the gut that needs to be addressed so if an individual can't tolerate things like oxalates in foods or salicylates in foods these are basically chemicals that the plant produces which can cause inflammation if this if this gentleman is gone on a carnivorous diet and he's now he's now got a diet that's void of any of those those chemicals that can be found in plants 
then yeah, his digestion might be better and inflammation might be better. But I am really skeptical of the long-term benefits of a carnivorous diet, primarily just because of the lack of fiber in the diet. Um, and yeah, there's not many nutritionists who would question the need for fiber. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny you say it because um, even the, so he was, I heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast speaking about this a little while mm. ago and even Joe was like, who's fairly open-minded <laughs> most of the time was going, dude, like, have you got any blood work to support this or what's the story? Because I'm like, I'm, I'm stoked that anecdotal evidence is good, but he sort of suggested the same thing as you. And he seems yeah. like predominantly a big meat eater himself. So to hear him questioning anyone about how much meat they were eating, I was, <laughs> I was really surprised to hear. But yeah, that makes it makes perfect sense. Have you followed much of the debate around the, and, and I guess this comes back to the extremes that we were speaking about earlier, but have you followed mm. much of the debate around this game changes documentary that came out on Netflix? And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was massive, wasn't it? Like, uh, you know how many people like sort of called up the clinic and they were like, I think I want to go plant-based. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I even had to say to people, you know, why do you want to go plant-based? And I like to get really clear on that with people before before going plant-based because I think if you want to do plant-based really well, you you have to be willing to do good, like go and do your food shopping, do some food prep and educate yourself on, on what your diet should look like. Now, yeah, I am predominantly plant-based. I allow some eggs into my diet and that's pretty much the sort of the only animal um, product that I would consume. And I've got my own reasons for going plant-based. Uh, but the Game Changers documentary, I couldn't even finish it. I could not even finish it. And I'm quite bas- I'm quite passionate about the potential risks of being meat reliant and what that might do for our food supply and food sustainability and potentially my children and their children's children. Um, but the game changes, I found it to be a really one-sided view and a quite alarming view. And also... Uh, almost embarrassing that the science that they decided to use in this documentary some of the, some of the some of the stuff that they tapped into you know looking at men and the the quality of their erections based on whether they were eating meat or not eating meat you know that from my perspective is just about trying to get viewers and get people on board so i actually think they had an opportunity to make an awesome documentary which got some great science um, and perhaps some less embarrassing anecdotal evidence to support the plant-based diet. Uh, and I, I think I think they had an opportunity, they missed it with that documentary. That's my personal perspective of it. Like I think there was a lot of clever language and a lot of um, sensationalised uh, sens- sensationalized studies that they cherry-picked to use in that documentary. So, yeah, I think I shut it off after about 45 or 50 minutes and I haven't gone back to yeah. watch it. Uh, because I just think there's a bit of misinformation in there. And I, I, um, I, I want people, if they're going to be plant-based, like, like my goal is to get people to learn how to use less animal protein. That is one of my missions in life is to help people uh, understand how they can be less reliant on choosing animal proteins to sustain their day-to-day and, you know, their athletic pursuits and goals. Um, but if, if, we are painting this pie in the sky version of a plant-based diet and encouraging people to go out tomorrow and go plant-based with not much education and thinking that they can just have bread and pasta and the, the same diet, but just remove the animal protein element. That's not going to be sustainable. And that's not going to help anyone in this mission of um, reducing our reliance as a, as a society on animal proteins. Does that make sense? Because that athlete who's super inspired by the game changers but does nothing of their own research to transform their diet but just removes the animal protein element, um, they're going to wind up in a hole. <laughs> maybe, like, you know, maybe not in the first month or two but potentially in the first 12 months to 24 to, to 36 months. Yeah, it's so interesting, yeah, because they're just cutting out like a crucial part of the, the diet or one of the nutrients that they're getting from their diet, which now they've cut that out, what, they're just going back to living on bread and carbs and whatever else they might yeah. have. Like it's not necessarily a, a good sub- a substitute. Is that what you mean? 
Yes, precisely. And we use the term starchitarian in, um, in, in study that I've done, you know, looking at that vegetarian or vegan who has decided to re- remove animal protein, but instead they just, re- they just rely on starch. So, you know, they're then centering all of their meals around sweet potato, potato, if it's whole food carbs that they're even going for, or quite often, yeah, it is pasta, it is bread, it is breakfast cereals. And um, it's, it's highly processed stuff that's not conducive to health. Like we know that the plant-based diet has benefits for reducing risk of heart disease. So we know through research that it helps to lower um, levels of LDL cholesterol or low density lipoprotein. It helps to reduce risk of type 2 diabetes. It helps to reduce body mass index. It helps to reduce blood pressure. Um, But these benefits of the plant-based diet don't come just from not eating animal products alone. These benefits of a plant-based diet come from eating a really whole food plant-based diet, which contains an abundance of vegetables, yes, fruits, lots of nuts and seeds. That's where the benefits come from. And so if you just talk about how bad meat is and people remove meat and don't bring in all of these beautiful, really antioxidant-rich, fibre-rich plant foods, they're no better off than that person who's eating the carnivorous diet. I I had a client who came in to see me and um, he was overweight, he had high blood pressure, he was staring down the barrel of type 2 diabetes, like his fasting blood glucose was scary, his glycated hemoglobin was scary, which gives us a trend of fasting blood glucose levels he came in, he said he wanted to go plant-based because Rich Roll was plant-based and he was obviously a very successful athlete. This same client, however, wanted me to approve like Domino's pizza a few times a week, toasted sandwiches for lunch, um, you know, the plant-based snack bars. And I was uh, like, I was like, oh, this is, this is not going to work. You know, you can't eat Domino's pizza and expect that you're going to um, reverse your, your prospect of type two diabetes. Yeah. So um, I went on a very long tangent there, but I guess my point is, is that we can't look at a plant-based diet as um, being inherently healthy. There still have to be Uh, like nuances within that diet. It still has to be a whole food plant-based diet rather than a diet that's void of animal protein. Yeah. Difference between the two. It's uh, it's so interesting to me that it's one thing that one thing that's come up a lot in the podcast I've been doing lately is how much in Mm. training, in running training, it's usually the simple things which seem to work the best. And even though we have all this science and stuff to back it up, it's the, the comfort in that is the fact that it just seems to support these really simple, obvious things. And like one thing that I'd be interested to hear from you, because the idea of food being medicine is, is something which is so foreign to a, a lot of us now. Like mm. if you've got a headache, it's about no, take a tablet. And if you've got any aches or pains, it's about, it's, it's never about just sleep and diet and nutrients. It's about, okay, what tablets are there to fix it? And I'm just interested to hear from your perspective. Like I know you're a big proponent of the mm. idea of uh, food being a major, like the main source yeah. of medicine for a, a lot of the ailments that so many of us face. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I'm just so in- interested to hear your your perspective on the role that food plays in, in just keeping us healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. We we live in a society now where it's a bit of a pill for an ill. Like we've we've got some inflammation in our ankle we go and take some medita- medication we've got a headache we go take panadol rather than go and drink some water and, and go and have a lie down we have high blood pressure so we get given some blood pressure medication um so yeah there's there's this sense that oh, we'll just be able to rely on other things to help fix us as opposed to hold on what if we were in control of our bodies and we could do some preventative stuff to help help us stay in a really wonderful position for you know as long as we can as long as we can foresee uh and so you know i i don't practice in a way where i get into the nitty-gritty around um nutrient status with clients from the get-go i often will do Um, blood testing and we might look at things like hormone analysis and gut microbiome analysis down the track. Um, But first and foremostly, I teach my client what needs to be on their plate. So they're getting nutrient, so they're getting adequate nutrient intake. In other words, they're getting this really nutrient dense plate. Um, Some of these nutrients we can package up in pills, like we can get B vitamin supplements and we can get vitamin C supplements 
but the evidence suggests that there's just something about eating all of these nutrients in the whole food form when they come in a nice package and they land in our body all together that's when they confer the most benefits so when i'm teaching my clients about their their day-to-day nutrition first and foremostly the priority at every single meal is to get an abundance of non-starchy vegetables there's a very long list of these vegetables, but you can you know, quite simply think of your green leafy vegetables like your spinach and your kale, and then also your coloured vegetables like your pumpkin and your carrot. And you know, this is where you're going to get different antioxidants, different phytochemicals, fibre, different vitamins and minerals, uh, and that's where we want the bulk of all of that stuff to come from. Then I talk to my, my clients about the importance of getting protein with every meal. So we're not talking about huge amounts of protein, um, but certainly like a moderate amount of protein. And yes, you can get fancy and you can talk about grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Um, I usually sort of convey protein as, as being like a percentage of total energy intake, but really it ends up looking like a serving of protein with most main meals. That would suffice most people. So it's like eggs or chicken or some beef or um, even a good quality organic protein powder or it's lentils and legumes and nuts and seeds. And this is where we can get the protein, the amino acids, those building blocks for our muscles and supporting, um, supporting muscle maintenance and recovery, but importantly building blocks for things like um, you know, our neurotransmitters and soft tissues and other things that we don't even think about that much. Um, then I always highlight the importance of getting fats on the plate. So between one and two serves, everybody's going to be a little bit individual as to how much they require, just like that protein com- conversation. Um, but I want my clients to have quality fats with every single one of their meals. And by quality fats, I mean the fat that we get from things like avocados, nuts and seeds, nut and seed oils, um, coconut milks, coconut creams, even coconut oil, even though, yes, it's saturated fat. Uh, But these fats are really important for producing hormones. And these fats are super important for allowing the storage of fat-soluble vitamins, so things like vitamin D and E and K. and Also really important for energy levels, so giving us the energy to get up day to day and, yes, even go and train. And then I explained to my my clients about the role that carbohydrates on their plate play. And so carbohydrates, obviously, if we're looking at whole food carbohydrates like fruit and starchy vegetables and grains and pseudo-grains, these are a source of fibre and antioxidants like we get from our non-starchy vegetables. Uh, But these are also a source of the carbohydrates which help us to maintain nice and healthy muscle glycogen stores, which is what's going to support us in our training and particularly our high-intensity training. And carbohydrates also, like for females in particular, it's important that we're getting adequate amounts of carbohydrate, not excess but adequate, um, so that that we can maintain regular menstrual cycle and, and hormone balance. But when you go through the plate like that, you sort of break it down into the non-starchy veg, protein, quality fats, and whole food carbohydrates, it doesn't take long for you to realize that, oh my God, you know, all the stuff I'm thinking about buying this pill and that package and that supplement, getting a lot of it on my plate. And if I put attention into getting that plate three times a day, then suddenly it's a really nutrient dense diet and your requirement for supplements or the worry around um, uh, uh, not meeting nutrient status is not quite there. Does that make sense? Does that resonate with you? I I feel like I cut you off a couple of times. So I was just making sure there's a little pause before I interrupted you again. It it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like it's something that's not just beneficial potentially to to an athlete, but it's it's just general healthy talk for your lifestyle, isn't it? Like, is there anyone that wouldn't benefit from a from a, a transition to something like this or is it because it sounds as though mm. when we speak about this obviously if you do it right and you have help by someone like yourself in making that transition to a, a lchf i've nailed it lchf yes. diet that it can be really beneficial to your every energy levels but just from a day-to-day basis like, it sounds like something that like whether my wife mm. or whether it's my mum would just benefit from and they've got nothing to do with athletics in general 
Yeah, exactly. Most people can benefit from it. And I'm, I hope I haven't sort of eliminated any, um, any subgroups, but certainly most people can, because what I come back to more often than not is just eating real food. And if, if we come, if we again consider that idea of whether there's controversy in the space around high carb or, or lower carb, let's just come back to eating real food. Because when we focus on eating real food, which is like whole food, food that is the way it was when it came out of the ground, off the tree, or perhaps from the animal, um, it's naturally going to be lower in carbohydrate and far lower in carbohydrate than the food pyramid. You know, in the food pyramid, we've got cereals and breads and processed grains, and we're actually being told to aim for about 600 um, or as little as 400 grams of carbohydrates per day, which is what I would call a high-carbohydrate diet. But if you're focusing on just eating real foods where, yeah, there might be some sweet potato and potato and quinoa and fruit, uh, it's going to be quite difficult to go above the 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. And depending on the individual and their goals in life, you know, whether it's a uh, female that's not very active and wants to lose weight or whether it's a male that's very active and just wants to optimize his training recovery, then the carbohydrate element will look quite different. But the LCHF spectrum sits on anywhere from 200 grams of carbs a day right down to like 40 to 50 grams of um, carbohydrates per day. So it can definitely benefit everybody. We've just got to look at tailoring the version of LCHF to suit the individual and where they're at in their lifestyle. Yeah, fantastic. I'm really curious just to be able to pick your brains and not as a uh, necessarily a recipe just to copy, but just to see what it is that someone mm. like yourself is eating throughout the day. Because I always, mm. I think I'm relatively good. I look at my diet, but I'm interested. I think you'd uh, give me a hard time because this is such a funny thing to say. And it sounds like a, a humble brag, but I know it's probably not to someone like you. But Jesse mm. always teases me because I just I eat too much fruit and I, like I really, really like uh, it. But what yeah. are your thoughts on, are there, I've just thrown two questions at you here. I'm going to get yeah, yeah. a diagnosis for myself and then I'm going to ask you about your job every day because I'm really curious <laughs> yeah, to yeah. find that. But, but is there a recommendation on how much fruit someone like me should have throughout a day? Because I can quite easily go through three or four bananas just in a smoothie and then have a couple of apples on top of that. And um, it's seriously mm. like I wake up in the morning, the first thing it's a, I guess, like compared to heroin, it's probably not a bad thing to be addicted to. But <laughs> if you're trying to optimise your health, it's, I'm sure there's, there's better ways of yeah. it. Um, can I throw that at you first and hear your thoughts and then I'm going to ask you about your diet specifically and how that's been for your, for your own marathon? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, interesting, we do talk about sometimes as carbohydrate being as, addic as addictive as something like heroin because it is a drug. Our body does get addicted to it and very reliant on it. And I think it would be really interesting for you to look at an LCHF plate or at least your version of and to see how you feel over the first few days. I reckon you feel pretty slump. Like I said before, there's that metabolic grey zone uh, because the um, that that waking up in the morning and feeling instantly hungry and that idea of like not being able to fathom a meal that doesn't have fruit or potato, sweet potato, pasta, bread, um, rice or buckwheat, the idea of not being able to fathom a meal that doesn't have that, um, the idea of not being able to train on an empty stomach, that getting hungry within a few hours of, of having had your last meal, ups and downs in energy levels. And I'm not saying that you've experienced all of that, but they're all the signs of a more carbohydrate burning athlete. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is some sign there that potentially you do love fruit and are a little bit addicted to it, but also your body is currently quite reliant on carbohydrate as a fuel source. And it might be working for you now. Like I said before, like an athlete doesn't necessarily have to change their diet if it's not working for them. But I'd be really interested in looking at your training recovery and what your energy levels are like and how consistent your energy levels are. I would be really interested in things like your lipid profile and your fasting blood glucose levels. Uh, and and they might all be signs that hmm, maybe your reliance on carbohydrate isn't actually working for you. And maybe in that smoothie, instead of having four bananas, you need to have like one banana, some berries, some kale, some nuts and seeds, uh, and maybe some like some hemp protein powder and some milk, and blend that up and see if that keeps you for keeps you as full as the smoothie with four bananas in it. 
Yeah, no, beautiful. That's good. Well, I've already been taking mental notes because I'm thinking everything you say in this whole conversation has, has sounded pretty good to me. I think I've already got that <laughs> for the LCHF diet uh, just in the course of the last 40 minutes, but I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted on that. The second question I was going to ask you um, uh, is uh, yeah. just about your daily daily diet. Like what what's sort of on yeah. your plate at each meal? Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually putting together my first meal today and I was like, oh, I wonder if Tyson's going to ask me what I ate today. I love that question. I could talk to someone for ages about what I ate. <laughs> um, so today so I'm in like a, a period of, of recovery at the moment from injury. It feels like it's the longest recovery from a hamstring tear ever. Um, but uh, my training at the moment is not so intense. So I do a couple, I do like a 7K run every opposite, every odd day and some strength training in between. But I wouldn't say I'm on a high training load right now. And that does have a flow on effect to what I eat. So it means that first and foremostly at the moment, I practice a lot of intermittent fasting. And that works for me. It doesn't work for everybody and it doesn't work for every female either. But I have been practicing intermittent fasting for a number of years, which means my body is quite used to going for um, relatively extended periods without eating. So for me, that means I can go between 14 to 16 hours overnight without eating. And in that period, well, today in that period, I had a black coffee um, and I also had a hot drink with a mushroom powder and cacao powder mixed together. Um, so that was what I had this morning. And then at midday, I had my first meal and it was a flaxseed meal um, porridge that I'm obsessed, obsessed with right now. So it's a combination of flax seeds, coconut flour. I have green apple flour in there, which is a resistant starch, which means it's a prebiotic and a food for the really good gut bacteria there in my gut microbiome. There was also chia seeds in there almond milk, lots of berries, some hemp protein powder and some vanilla essence. And then I topped it with some hemp seeds and cacao nibs. So that was my breakfast. It was light on in vegetables. So like as a snack this afternoon, I'll probably have some celery with some 100% um, peanut butter. Um, and then for dinner tonight, I've got soup on the card. So I've got a pumpkin, cauliflower and carrot soup that I'll cook up with some veggie stock, some coconut cream, and I will serve that with some hemp seeds on top. And maybe, um, and actually I will have a slice of um, gluten-free bread with it. Yeah. So that's yeah. my day today. <laughs> uh, and probably probably two squares of dark chocolate after dinner because oh, I still can't go without my dark chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the highlight of my, uh, of my fridge. I think every night when we finish, not every night, but maybe too much, uh, more than I should, mm. I guess he loves that 80% uh, lint chocolate. The lint chocolate. But I'm a sucker for it. So I'm so open to changing the way that I operate after this. I feel like it's one of those conversations I'm going to have to go back and listen to again just because... I need to take notes on it. But um, uh, well, let's have a chat afterwards. Maybe not today. Let's have another chat. We'll set you up. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds really good. I had a, I had a question for you that I was, I was really interested to find out and I've, I've just got sucked into your daily diet and now I've forgotten what it uh. was. Um, let me throw a couple of questions at you that the, that the audience that really yes. wanted to hear from you and, uh, yeah. and we'll see how we go. For, have you still got a few minutes? Is that all right? I do. I do. I'll just try and make sure I don't like, you know, talk forever in response to the questions. Please, please, please do. I wish I wish I had all afternoon to talk to you because it's so good. One sec, Jesse's just written me a note here. Uh, so I'm, oh, sorry. yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay, well, I, I shouldn't celebrate this. Just so you know, okay, the, the next podcast is actually just cancelled. So if ah, you want to go okay, for cool. a little bit longer, feel free. Uh, that was the note right. that Jesse's written, so awesome. Oh, my God, um, Jesse's the best. She's like your personal assistant. <laughs> so annoying. I was like, babe, stop writing notes. I'm trying to focus here. And then she's like, you need to read this. This <laughs> is so perfect. Okay, let me, let me take this question at you. So the first one is from a bloke called Josh Whelan, and you sort of touched on this earlier, I think, but I'd like to hear a few more thoughts on it. Uh, about mm. He just said fasted training, yes or no. Um, so I'll yep. leave that in your hands and, and see what you think. Gotcha. Um, faster training is something that I recommend quite a lot in clinic with my athletes. Uh, and, you know, that's anybody who's looking to do marathons, do triathlons, or if it's, you know, it's just uh, some of my fat loss clients who want to lose some body fat. And often there's overlap there. You know, there's guys that are preparing for a race and they still need to lose body fat. So 
I am a, a proponent of fasted training, but I guess to classify, clarify like what fasted training is, fasted training is, is training that is done on an empty stomach. And in order for your stomach to be empty, you need to have not eaten for around about eight hours following your previous meal, okay? So for most athletes, the most convenient time to do fasted training is in the morning. Some athletes might have breakfast and then wait until the afternoon to go out and do fasted training. But for most athletes, training in the morning is the best time to do faster training. So that means you get up out of bed, you might have uh, some water, you might have something else that is calorie free. So some black coffee, for example, or black tea or herbal tea, and then you go out and train. There are some versions of faster training that I might recommend to females or people that are adjusting, are adjusting to faster training for the first time. And that means rather than having no calories in the morning, you might have calories from very specific sources. So calories from coconut oil or organic grass-fed butter, which just means that the individual is getting a little bit of a, a leg up through some fats coming in, but they're still not having any carbohydrate. Carbohydrate is what causes the, the rise in blood glucose and therefore the rise in insulin, which is what we want to avoid to get the benefits of faster training. So in a state of um, low circulating insulin, essentially your body is able to utilize fats, okay? So if you've got no insulin circulating, you go out for a run, then you're putting your body into a state of fat burning. You're in essence like training that that muscle, that muscle of your ability, your body's ability to burn fat for fuel. So I am a big proponent of faster training for that reason, but there's got to be some caveats around that. So for some females, not for some females, but for females of childbearing age who want to preserve their menstrual cycle, then um, faster training may only be beneficial at periods of the cycle as, a, as opposed to other periods of the cycle. Um, for people that have never trained fasted before, then you start slow when you build your way up. So it means, um, you know, you might start on a half hour easy session and build yourself up to being able to do like a two hour easy run fasted on an empty stomach. Um, then as the sessions get longer, so as you get better, better fat adapted and as you get better at training on empty or training fasted, you do have to consider where fueling comes into play. So there are some athletes who latch onto this idea of faster training and they think, oh, I can do four, two hours, I'm going to try and do four hours. And that's where it becomes um, you know, less beneficial for the athletes. So up, a, up around the 90-minute to two-hour mark is when I start talking to my athletes about actually bringing some fueling in during the session. So if it, is, if it is a long session, they're still getting the benefits of a fasted session for the first like 90 to 120 minutes, and then we're building some fueling in thereafter. Um, so that's for more the aerobic steady state um, style sessions there are some athletes who find they get more out of their session like an intensity session like an interval session or if it's a strength-based session there are some athletes who find that they just don't perform well during those sessions on an empty stomach and in those cases I encourage the athlete to listen to their body and to and to not necessarily do those sessions on an empty stomach and that's because the goal is different right like in aerobic sessions we are trying to train that fat burning metabolism so and so it makes sense to get out and do a aerobic session on an empty stomach but in an interval session or a strength based session we're not trying to fuel fat burning you know we're trying to stimulate muscle growth or support speed or train that that anaerobic system and so Doing that faster isn't isn't necessary necessarily. Awesome, awesome. That's such a good answer. Awesome. Um, the second one is from uh, a girl called Sarah Criscus. I hope I'm saying her name right. She mm. said the B vitamins uh, really give energy. Is how she's written it. And should we take supplements or find foods with them? And which foods? I'm happy to repeat that if you want because I know it's a long question. No, that's okay. Yeah, do B, do B vitamins give us that BB bounce is what I think about when somebody asks that question. Um, and from the old Barocca ad, that is. Um, but, yeah, look, B vitamins do help us to transform the, the food that we eat into energy for our cells, the mitochondria within our cells to use for energy. So there's no question that as athletes we do need to have optimal vitamin B 
um, status and intake in order to support cellular or energy level energy production at the cellular level. Um, there are some B vitamins that are particularly important. So that's B3, B5, B6, and B12. They're some of like the, the top of the list in terms of the B vitamins that we need for, um, for various different reasons. Um, B12 is implicated in hemoglobin status and therefore our oxygen carrying capacity. B6 help, helps us to utilise uh, muscle glycogen, so really important for helping us to access that fuel for um, higher intensity activity. So, yeah, we need B vitamins and they will help to give us energy. But whether or not to supplement, I think, is a different question because there are lots of other reasons as to why we might not have enough energy. Yeah, so. Um, to think that I don't have enough energy, I'll start B vitamins, I think is a simplified view of things because we also have to appreciate that um, what could be draining energy levels is things like stress, things like inflammation, which might not be training-induced inflammation. It might be inflammation due to poor gut health, like food reactivity or inflammation due to like an un underlying infection that's not being identified. Um, or it might be other nutrient deficiencies that are causing the low energy levels, like you know inadequate magnesium intake or inadequate iron levels or ferritin levels. And so whilst there may be a benefit in taking some B vitamins if that's what's causing your low energy levels, um, if it's not low B vitamin if intake that's causing low energy levels, then the B vitamin supplement is, is not going to make a huge difference. Uh, to, I guess, protect yourself and create that insurance policy against lack of B vitamins, think about building your plate in the way that I talked about before because those B vitamins are going to come from green leafy vegetables, from nuts and seeds, from other vegetables and from animal proteins as well. If you don't want animal proteins there on your plate, really the only B vitamin that you're not going to get access to is B12. Um, and so you do need to look to a specific B12 supplement at that point um, because it's not just going to, it's just not going to be obtained on a purely plant-based diet. So yes, B vitamin helps to give us, helps to give us energy. Um, we can absolutely get adequate B vitamin intake through our diet and we may need to look to a B12 supplement if we're not eating animal protein as part of that diet. There is the option to supplement with vitamin Bs, but in my practice, I usually work with my, my, my clients to sort of triage the situation and look at what could be draining their energy levels. You know, if it's not enough sleep or it is stress like I talked about or if they're drinking too much alcohol or if they're overtraining, then they're all things that need to be addressed firstly because otherwise the, the money you spend on, on the water-soluble B vitamins is, is going to be water down, money down the drain, not water down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, this is such a good podcast. I'm so happy mm. that you came on. Um, here yeah. we go. Lily, Lily Mick has said, uh, I hope that's a real, I keep getting self-conscious that I'm just reading out Instagram names and not real yeah. names, but I'm yeah. sure yeah. who they are. Um, what type of protein uh, should you have after a run, pea, rice, or whey? Um. Interesting one. What type of protein should you have after a run? I would say have any of those, pea, rice, whey. Um, it depends on you as an individual. I usually, I usually recommend pea protein powder or even hemp seed protein powder. But if you're going to use a protein powder and you're not, not bothered about whether it comes from an animal protein source and you don't have any reactivity or intolerances to any one of those powders, then any one of those would be fine. Um, I also think it's it's important to assess um, like the relevance of the protein powders. So for some athletes, a low train, a low intensity training session, you know, like a recovery run, rolling your legs over type session, might not even require a dose of protein straight after the session. You know, that individual might be able to afford to wait until they're hungry and then you eat. And you might eat eggs with vegetables in an omelette. Or you might have a smoothie which has berries in it and nuts and seeds in it for antioxidant value and quality fats, and then you add your protein powder for that protein element. Um, certainly for higher intensity training sessions, so that strength-based sessions or interval-based sessions, I, I would recommend that there is a meal coming in in the sort of 60 minutes after the session 
and as part of that meal having protein. So that's where the protein powder might become helpful as part of a smoothie, for example. But I don't often recommend just the, the pure use of a protein powder as a, as a recovery drink. Okay. So you'd point more towards like a whole food kind of replacement? Mm, yeah. Well, not necessarily buying a meal replacement powder, certainly still using a protein powder, which is as, as close to being that which it's sold as. as it, what I mean by that is you're buying a pea protein, which has pea protein and maybe three or four other ingredients, but it doesn't have a trail of like 25 ingredients in there. So you can still absolutely look to one of those protein um, uh, isolates and use them, but you want to use them as part of a meal. And I, I, I say that because it's everything in the meal that helps with training recovery. So after high, high intensity training sessions and strength-based sessions, of course, you need those amino acids to help with muscle recovery and maintenance. Um, but if it's hypertrophy that you're after, then you also want some carbohydrate in that meal. Um, and if it's recovery that you're after, then you also want some antioxidants in that meal. And if it's sustained energy that you're after, then you also want some quality fats in that meal. So it goes from just being a protein powder in some water to suddenly being a smoothie that has berries and vegetables and protein powder, but then nuts and seeds and a banana, for example, to get that whole list of like training recovery requirements in there. Yeah, no, fantastic. Fantastic. Look, We've been going for, for 70 minutes and I'm, I've got in the back of my mind that I told you that we'd be here for an hour and 15 minutes. I don't want to feel free to tell me you got to go whenever you got to go. But um, just for, uh, I'm sure that there, there's plenty of people feeling like me out there and really inspired by what you've, what you've said. And there's so much just to take in. And especially because it's such yeah. an individual thing, there might be some individuals who want to yeah. actually have a chat to, to you for themselves about their diet and their running and, and whatever else they're working towards. So uh, for someone in that position, like where do they where do they find you at the moment? Yeah, you're still obviously doing plenty of Zoom sessions and and stuff. Yeah, look, you're so right. Nutrition is so incredibly relative, and that's why it is a controversial area, and that's why people can sort of feel like they're going round and round in circles with what they're having and what they're not having. Um, and so, I, I, like, that's why I love working with people one on one because it helps to sort of cut through the mustard and get straight to like what's right for you as an individual. So if people are interested about um, what it means to work with me, then I would say go to my website, which is nutritionally.com. So it's basically nutrition with Ellie on the end, nutritionally.com. Uh, you can read about the consultation process and what it's like, or you can book in right there on the website. And if you just want to speak to me and get to know me before you like delve into more comprehensive consultations, then you can book in for a 15 minute complimentary consultation. And that's an awesome opportunity to sort of share with me a bit about what your goals are and figure out whether I'm the nutritionist that you want to work with. Yeah. So nutritionally.com or you can um, follow me on Instagram, which is nutritionally. Mm-hmm. 